You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Today I'm coming to you from the Society for Military History Conference, which uh, this year is in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I'm sitting down with Ralph Sawyer, a uh, renowned and uh, very well-respected scholar of uh, Chinese military history of, I believe, what he calls the traditional period. Uh, Ralph is an independent scholar uh, and consultant, historical consultant, has worked with a lot of government agencies. Um, And uh, he's written extensively on Chinese military history, but he is also uh, very well known as having translated uh, the current, and I would say uh, definitive, to the extent there ever is definitive of anything in the historical world, uh, a version of The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And I know I'm incorrectly pronouncing Sun Tzu, and I'm sure that Ralph will correct me here in a moment, as he speaks Chinese and I do not. But without further ado, uh, Ralph Sawyer, thank you so much for joining us uh, with the International Spy Museum. Oh, it's always an honor and a pleasure. Um, Sun Tzu's Art of War. Uh, who was Sun Tzu? What's the importance of this text? We'll be talking about more text than just that, but let's start with that. And you want to tell me also how to properly pronounce Sun Tzu? Uh, we don't really know because it's archaic, archaic language. But uh, Sun Tzu was probably the equivalent of the first national security advisor in the state of Wu, about 500 B.C. And this was a period of internecine conflict as the states that had continued to exist at that time were engaged in multi-party antagonism and annexation and were intent on aggrandizing themselves to the fullest extent of possible. It was a period of greatly increased uh, scope in warfare and lethality. And Swinzer found himself trying to encourage the ruler of Wu how to improve discipline, organization, structure, and adopt basic tactical principles in order to be able to survive and conquer his neighbors. Um, So the art of war then, a big portion of it, um, one entire chapter out of 13, at least as we organize the text uh, these days, is about espionage. 
Um, and it's actually a very sophisticated treatment of espionage, I think, my, my personal view, with the exception maybe of one text that comes out of India at roughly the same period of time, probably the most sophisticated surviving text on espionage until sometime in the 19th century, at least that I'm aware of. So well, what sorts of uh, espionage and other intelligence operations did uh, Swinza or Sun Tzu talk about, and, and, and how did this relate to, to this topic of war and being, this, as you say, the national security advisor for the state of Wu? Well, I think we need to understand that in Swinza's conception, uh, warfare should be as efficient as possible because victory could be extremely debilitating, create a power vacuum, and allow your enemies to encroach upon you. And he believed in founding all warfare not on random emotions or desires, but rather careful assessment of the enemy, gathering thorough military intelligence, and then using what agents you possibly could to cause difficulties for the enemy, to confuse the enemy, to manipulate the enemy. This is all part of his general thrust belief that you go to war only if you absolutely have to. It's better to achieve victory without fighting by balking the enemy's plans and thwarting his alliances. Now, Swinza had examples of uh, espionage going on before him. In fact, the earliest spoken about uh, case relates to a gentleman named Yi In, who was an advisor sent by the state of Shang to the ruler of Sha, which, if it was actually occurred, would be 1600 BC. You say if it actually occurred, this is doubtful, I take it. It's uh, it, it's, we, there's no historical records. There'd be no writing at this time. But we do know that Yi In was a, an actual person, and he continued to be reverenced throughout the uh, Shang dynasty for 450 four years. He was offered sacrifice, which only basically the kings and the other important ancestors were. So he seems to have accomplished a great deal to help establish the dynasty. And he was, he was given a legend. He was wounded by the king of Shang, made to look like they had fallen out, and fled to the Shah, where he was able to gather intelligence, especially from the king's wife. So that's one of the first examples, that stories that would have been floating around in Swinza's time. But he had many examples of states sending their ambassadors, sending merchants, uh, sending people in disguise of slaves and servants to gather what we would call more political intelligence than military intelligence at that time. Um, so Swinza Sun Tzu is not writing simply a theoretical treatise. I mean, he's... You know, what he's writing about is what he understood to be practice, and his ideas were, in fact, followed and, you know, actually implemented uh, by others who, who, uh, who, who succeeded him. This, was, this wasn't just an abstract musing. These, these represent, to some degree, uh, give us insight, rather, to some degree, in actual Chinese practice. Would that be fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Swinza is not an armchair general. He's very much involved. He's the director of the CIA, as well as the director of defense planning and... Uh, the tactical advisor, and in trying to um, achieve dominancy, he's going to use every means possible. So the text we have, the 13th chapter, is really the first theoretical articulation. He's sitting down and pondering, what are agents? How do they function? What types of agents can we use? And he comes up with five basic types of agents. Um, we today would just say, defectors on one hand and spies dispatched into the uh, enemy country on the other hand, uh, depending upon whether or not they return, they may be expendable. And from the outset, they have an activist caste or orientation to them. They're expected to engage in assassination. 
And a primary function is misinformation or disinformation. Swinz was very much concerned with manipulating the enemy, and the key way you do that is A, by being secret yourself, and one way to be secret is to deceive him as to what you're doing. So you send agents in who will, if you're planning to attack in the West, will say that you're planning to attack in the East. So misinformation, disinformation, extremely key at this period of time. What are Swinz's views on the morality of espionage? Uh, in more recent uh, centuries, in Europe at least, and I only say Europe and the United States because that's the part of the world that I know best, um, the general view on espionage has been, and this ameliorates over time, but it's been, well, this is really distasteful and unpleasant, and it is only the supreme emergency of war that in any way morally justifies this horrible thing. And by the way, we prefer gentlemen not to do this. Maybe we'll give this to the lower class of people. Uh, what, are, what, are the, what are Swinza's views on the morality of espionage? It wasn't even an issue because he was concerned with uh, the realistic situation. Later on, 1,500 years later, when the imperial dynasties have unified the country and Confucianism has come to prevail among the literati, they have the luxury and the leisure to look back and condemn measures that Swinza advocates and measures such as the Taigong, one of the, another important strategist who helped to found the Zhou dynasty, these men can now be condemned for what they had tried to do. But generally speaking, the military writings all say that spying is necessary. And in fact, they expand the categories. They discuss in greater detail operational constraints, measures using multiple uh, agents, keeping them ignorant of each other, giving them the same objective, same task, and then comparing them. And they also go very much into developing counterintelligence uh, detecting enemy spies and being able to turn them. Now, turning the enemy agents would have been considered a kind of heinous procedure, but the realists, the military, they advocated it. Now, many other ancient peoples, uh, when faced with things that we would today recognize as intelligence questions or intelligence problems, uh, would um, consult oracles, cast bones, examine the entrails of birds, uh, you know, otherwise engage in you know, divination or other things that we recognize as being utterly unscientific and utterly unrelated, you know, actually uh, to uh, intelligence functions. Uh, it's superstition, it's magic, it's nothing more than that. But, but they, they viewed these techniques as um, allowing them to answer intelligence questions. Uh, was this, were these sorts of things practiced in this period in China? You, you seem to be describing a uh, Swinza, a Sun Tzu, who's a very rational, pragmatic, grounded kind of guy. Were, were these other practices floating around in his time? Well, before his time, the heritage was uh, different methods of divination. The primary method in the Shang Dynasty was to crack uh, tortoise, uh, tortoise or tortoise shells, and looking at the cracks determined whether or not a particular proposed action was advisable or acceptable to the ancestors who resided in heaven. Um, Swinza came along and said, this is baloney, the only agency is human agency, we cannot rely on divination. It's, uh, apart from being unsatisfactory, it can also be manipulated. And you wanted to eliminate any possibility of manipulation. So he stressed human agency. Now this isn't to say that divination as a practice disappears in China. It continues on for hundreds of years, and you have a whole separate tradition where people are keeping looking at omens and smoke and stars. They're not examining the entrails of birds and other animals, but they're looking at natural phenomena and trying to determine whether it signifies uh, 
propitiousness or balefulness, whether they should go forth or not. But I have to add that the Shang Dynasty kings, they hedged their bets a little bit. If they didn't get the answer they wanted today because they wanted to invade Mexico or something, then they would do it again tomorrow. And eventually they'd get the affirmation that they desired, and then they'd go forth and do it. But they also asked questions about what kind of commander, how many forces, and so on. Well, since you mentioned that question of what kind of commander, one of, one of Swinz's most famous dictums is that you should know the enemy and know yourself. Uh, first off, you, if you recall it off the top of your head, you know, can you give us the, the broader context there? And secondly, more importantly, what did knowing the enemy really mean uh, to him and, and to, the, to, the, to the leaders that he was advising or, or who read his text? Well, Swinz's whole art of war, if in fact he's the author, and even if he isn't, the text uh, comes into existence by the middle of the fourth century and, and is regarded as a military writing. The whole thrust of the art of the war is to uh, enter upon warfare on a thoroughly calculated rational basis. Um, all emotional uh, stimulus are to be thrown out and the net assessment, you do a net assessment based on five critical factors including the character of the enemy's uh, commanders and their unification whether they in fact are unified under the ruler or you have uh, dissension. But there are also about 40 other factors which make up about 20 pairs within... 20 pairs. 20 pairs within the art of war as to whether the enemy is stronger or not than you in, in each aspect. And they use some kind of tally board to actually do a calculation and if the calculations show that you were, say, 60 or 70 percent likely to win, then you could consider going to war. So his whole thrust is victory without combat. But if you have to fight as efficient as possible, so you suffer the least losses, and that's why you have to have the military intelligence. You absolutely have to know the enemy's situation from within, whether there's dissension within the ranks, whether they're suffering from famine, whether the troops are well trained, are the weapons prepared, or are they... Are, are the weapons in disrepair. All these kinds of factors can only be known by sending in human agents and bringing that information back. So then you can do your calculation. I heard you mention in a talk you gave here at the conference yesterday a concept of, if I recall correctly, chi. What is that? Uh, chi is, is essentially the uh, pneuma of life. It's a way of conceptualizing the morale or the spirit state of the army. And uh, Swinza is one of the first people to articulate it. Um, he very much believed in manipulating the enemy and not striking when the enemy's chi when, is at fullness. When they're zealous and prepared to go, you don't strike. You want to man it's just another form of manipulation. It's another factor that you can look at and analyze. If they are depressed, then you can attack. Are there other important texts on espionage or that, that deal in part with espionage from t traditional China, or is it primarily just Swinza and the, and the art of war that we really uh, form the core of this topic? No, absolutely. From the Warring States period, we began to see texts discussing the need for intelligence agents and uh, subversive programs. Then there's a sort of hiatus until about the 7th century AD when we start to get a revival of military works. And in if the, I can interrupt you, do, is there, why the hiatus? Why, why is there not you know, rich work um, in between there? Uh, many, well, Confucianism comes in to prevail. You have a certain kind of stability for a while. And many of the texts that people wrote, such as the famous commander Cao Cao, 
have been lost. So we don't know really the state of thinking, um, but it seems not to have been particularly innovative. It seems to have been a period of commentary rather than innovation. The warring states period in China, when everybody's trying to destroy each other, when seven large states end up being unified under the state of Qin, um, this is a period of great ferment and it's a great intellectual stimulus. War motivates a lot of creative thinking because you've got no choice. It's this period of rising professionalism. I mean, your administrators have to be brilliant. Your generals have to be good tacticians. Change of a general could cause defeat the next day. So uh, people are shifting from just picking up their weapons and going out to fight to trying to conceptualize what are the patterns of warfare. They don't use the word principles as such, but what are the patterns? What are the concepts? How can we organize warfare so it's efficient? But to get back to the other question, from the Tang Dynasty on, we have a continuous series of military writings. They make up the vast Chinese traditional military corpus. And in each of the texts that come along, there are always chapters devoted to the question of espionage. And this is where we begin to see the development, the expansion. Instead of just five agents, suddenly we have 12 kinds of agents. Some of them... I won't ask you to list them all. You know, some of them overlap anyway. And we, for us, they're a little bit uh, strange in categories. And you have um, this great emphasis on detecting enemy agents so that you can convert them to turned agents. The turned agent becomes extremely important because, one, you can get you know, very important information as to what they're looking for and begin to understand their objectives. And secondly, you can feed misinformation. We, in modern parlance, we call those double agents. Double agents, yeah. Uh, the strict term from Swinza is turned agents, but yeah, we would call them double agents. And beyond that, then you have theorizations how to evaluate the reports that you get and a behest or an admonition that you shouldn't just use gentlemen, perfected, educated men, but rather you should go out and get Virtually the dregs of society, the people who have streetwise knowledge, people who are woodcutters and cooks and slaves, and employ them because they won't be noticed. They'll be able to penetrate the enemy, whereas your more properly educated gentlemen, they'll be very visible and uh, obvious. Obviously, when you're trying to recruit agents from the enemy, you go into his court. You want highly placed positions. But when you're sending in agents, you want people of every variety. And this includes women. You suddenly, in the Song Dynasty, about 12, 1500, in that time, we suddenly get some theoretical concepts that women can be especially effective. And this is a little bit puzzling because Chinese society was very constrained, although the Tang and the Song was a period in which women had a bit more freedom in some ways. Women had always been used to debauch enemy rulers or also to gain favor with important officials and ministers. When you say debauch, do we mean using women as prostitutes? I mean, literally using sex, or what are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, it's just the lure of beauty, not necessarily sex as such, but just the lure of beauty. The most famous example is uh, when Confucius, who was a contemporary of Swinza, when Confucius was becoming very effective in reforming the government in the state of Lu, the officials in the state of Qi, which was to the northeast of it, in a very martial, powerful state, even given their power, they were very much troubled by these developments. So they sent a troop of 80 female musicians as a gift to the ruler of the state of Lu. And when they arrived, he was so mesmerized that for three days he didn't conduct court. Confucius looked at the situation, knew if he came in and remonstrated and started talking about righteousness and benevolence and uh, rectification, he would just be thrown out of his ear. So he voluntarily left the state. And this becomes 
it's not just an incident that happens, but it becomes part of the mindset. People thereafter always think even Confucius could be waylaid by using women. So debauchery through women, and especially using, trying to approach the consorts of the king or the ruler, um, the wives of important ministers, curry favor with them. Sounds like Marcus Wolf and the East German techniques. Yeah, very much so. So women came to be more used, um, uh, if, if I understand you correctly. It, it, but is it just in that seductive or yeah, you know, debauching kind of role, or are they also used to go observe and to... Absolutely. Information gathering, um, assassination, poisoning, or in some cases just inducing um, hallucinogenic mushrooms or things like this so that the ruler or important ministers will neglect government or bring about chaos in government. There's a whole concept of trying to subvert the enemy without actually going into combat. And this develops, this thrust develops in the warring states and is uh, very much articulated and used whenever China is fragmented. China is fragmented a couple of times, two centuries at a time in its imperial history. And when this happens, then you really see the proliferation of the use of agents. When it's well unified, then you're basically looking out uh, to the steppe peoples, to the Mongolians and Manchurians and the Khitan, and you're using them for internal security purposes. I uh, had the great honor uh, and pleasure yesterday of chairing a panel on which you spoke, and you gave a paper, um, much of which was about assassination in traditional China, and you've mentioned assassination a couple times here. Can you just maybe give us the 25-cent version? What's the bottom line of sort of the thinking in this period of China about assassination? Well, when China divided in the uh, spring and autumn period, 771 BC, roughly and thereafter, and we have this multi-party conflict, one of the most effective ways of causing chaos in other people's government is to send an assassin. And um, these were, rather than personal vendettas, these were, this became an instrument of state policy. Uh, one very effective means of decapitation uh, caused consternation, and many times you would end up with just a youthful ruler on the throne, seven or eight years old, suddenly assumes the throne, and that immediately leads to all kinds of internal intrigue and conflict. Because clearly a seven-year-old is not capable of running the kingdom. Exactly. So assassination um, is basically seen in periods when the country is fragmented rather than when the country is unified. What is estrangement? You also spoke about estrangement in your, in your paper, in your talk yesterday. Right. Well, the, uh, if you have a very effective minister in, a, say, let's say, the state of Qi, and you want to reduce his effectiveness, you begin to suggest that he has uh, other designs, that he's going to defect to some other state. You can uh, develop evidence of that. You can uh, use your double agency. Develop evidence, you mean basically fabricate. Or That's right. Evidence, right, yes, absolutely. Fabricate evidence, false letters, things like that, which accidentally get found. Or he suddenly is being well favored by the, uh, the diplomats from another state, or he's suddenly being visited by merchants or unknown purposes, uh, persons in the middle of the night. So you create circumstances that make it look like he's going to betray the ruler, or you say that he is uh, deliberately pursuing certain policies for his own gain, even though they might be the best policy for the state, the ruler immediately becomes suspicious. Um, you use uh, monetary funds, you use women, whatever, to create this kind of impression. You gave a really dramatic and brutal example uh, yesterday of a, of a man who... Uh, 
who uh, went through tremendous suffering for precisely this purpose, to, to establish his bona fides, as we'd say these days, for such an operation. Do you want to... There's a whole tradition of that, and um, when you read The Art of War, you find that one of the objectives of agents is to identify the people who should be assassinated or might be assassinated and the means of access to them. Now, of course, access is the key, key component, and we mentioned Eyn in the earliest days. He was shot by the king in the shoulder to create a, a legend or bona fide so that the other king would welcome him. Um, just before Swinza became the national security advisor, the pretender to the throne, he decided to eliminate his uncle. He employed uh, an assassin who needed to be able to gain access. Um, the first assassin became well-schooled, well-versed in how to prepare fish, and when he prepared the fish, he was able to pull out a dagger and stab the king. But then he had to, the new king had to eliminate any threats, residual threats from the heir to the former king. And he got a, young, a man who was sort of weak in appearance. He didn't look like a tough guy. They pretended that he had offended the king, and therefore he was beaten, he was whipped, he had his right hand cut off, his family was executed, and the bodies burned in the marketplace. A terrible, terrible insult at that time. And that allowed him to defect to the state where this young warrior was and gain access because naturally he was welcomed as someone had been wronged by the by the, by the, you know, the gentleman had you know, created the assassination, and he was able to pull out a sword with his left hand, a sword in this case only being what we would call a dirk, or, and uh, stab the young warrior whose strength vastly exceeded his. But there's a whole tradition that grows up of this, of assassination, that people will endure any kind of suffering in order to create this, this sort of believability, and it includes like blistering your flesh, uh, taking on the role of a butcher. And this kind of story not only flourishes in China, but of course in Korea and in Japan, and the ninja have a, a bit of that kind of romanticism in their tradition as well. Last question here. Is this of purely historical interest, or do these thoughts uh, and modes of approaching and thinking about intelligence and espionage uh, persist today in either Chinese military or Chinese intelligence thinking? Is this a, this a present-day issue, understanding these texts, or is this purely historical? No, the Academy of Military Science in uh, Beijing uh, has professors devoted just to studying the classics, the classic military writings and history for lessons and for concepts, principles, and techniques, which can be applied to create what the Chinese call military science with unique Chinese uh, characteristics. That is, they don't want to be second best at Western doctrine or uh, anybody else's doctrine. They want to be unfathomable. And you do this by being unorthodox. And they think the best lessons will come from their own history. Now, the rise of the state of Qin, which was a minor state in the West, they used all these techniques to subvert and eventually conquer the six states in the East. They used assassination, estrangement, bribes, and finally they rolled them up with military power. And these, these examples, this historical process is very much studied today. We see that in many of the theoretical writings in the, both the political and the military journals. The degree to which they are going to actually adopt this is unknown because we have difficulty accessing those kinds of sources. It's not like in Russia and Europe. Um, 
But there, there are hardliners who from time to time on websites and in other public pronouncements uh, openly advocate using these techniques. So we know it's a matter of debate, and we know that even the most esoteric of the military writings, including the ones on spycraft, especially the ones on deception, where uh, Chinese deception theory is very, very sophisticated. We don't have theory in the West. We have practice. We don't have theory. In China, the theory is very elaborate, continuous, very evolving. This is being studied assiduously for application, and it's all part and parcel of the same thrust, victory through wisdom rather than victory through combat. Well, on that profound note, I want to thank you, Ralph Sawyer, for sharing your insights with us today about Chinese thinking on intelligence and espionage, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference, and thank you so much for sitting down with us at the International Spy Museum. Thank you for the privilege. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.